0: And yet we're also thankful that it teaches us like what Jen, and when we are taught, when we are transformed, this community grows and it's knowledge and it's trust of you. And it moves from our heads to our hearts. So God, during these moments together, we now have to look at your word. We ask that the scripture, the truth that Jesus came to live and to embody, that that would move into our hearts as well. May the words of my mouth and the things that we consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. So I went to lunch with an old friend recently, and let's call this friend George. George, unfortunately, isn't in a great place right now. George is a longtime Eastsider, been around here for many, many years, and he went through this period of success in his career years ago, where it just kind of took him to the top of his game. He was one of the highest paid people in his field. Everybody was kind of looking to him. In a lot of ways, he could have settled into that streak, that just run of success, and said, I'm good. Like, I can just sort of camp out here. And then George took an opportunity, like some of us have, to go abroad. He actually went and moved to another country, worked there, took on a new challenge, same field that he'd been in, different environment. And the move couldn't have gone worse. For George, and this is just really rough, there was devastating upheaval in the organization he went to work for. It folded. There was nothing he could do about it. He faced rejection in his personal life. And now, as we sat over lunch, he talked about this feeling of being abandoned, this sense of just a spiritual desert in his life. And George is a follower of Jesus, and I couldn't even think of a reason that something like this would happen to him doesn't make any sense. All of us know people like George. Maybe you're in a situation right now like George where you're just wondering, like, what? Why is this going on? As George told me his story, his tears, his frustrations, these uh, deep things that he felt were broken about his family of origin, it all came pouring out. And after I left lunch with him, I realized George is being emptied right now. If he's like a cup of water, he is being just poured out right now. And it's painful. It is really painful. The scripture lesson that we're learning this morning is that being poured out is not the end of the story. And it's not just about pain. It is not just about suffering. It is about something that God is up to in George's life and something that is up to in our lives. The book of Philippians is the focus of our sermon series, and today we're going to be talking about different pieces of chapter 2. And chapter 2 is where this really important theological concept comes up in the New Testament that really is a game changer for the Apostle Paul and for the early church. It's in verse 7, we'll read it in a little while, but it's this idea of being emptied out, poured out. And the Greek word for that is kenosis. Kenosis is what happened to Jesus Christ, what he chose to step into when he went to the cross, when his life was poured out for the sake of others. There's an emptying. There is a becoming nothing is how some Bible passages, Bible translations translate verse seven. And it is painful. It was certainly painful for Jesus. And sometimes this emptying out is something that happens to us and we didn't choose it like my friend George. Sometimes it's something that we can pursue when we get to a place in our life and we start to go, you know what, I feel like I'm missing it. This, imp- this emptying, this being poured out, can leave us feeling lost and confused. And Jesus went through this. We talked about this a few weeks ago with the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a wrestling, there was a coming to grips with what God was doing in his life, and it was a form of being emptied, being poured out. So we're going to talk about what that means, like how does that play in our lives. Paul connects this to two different pathways later in the scripture. He talks about salvation and he talks about finding God's good pleasure. He talks about a happy ending. So thankfully, there is a happy ending. So if you want to write down a main idea for today as we study, our main idea is this. A bigger life comes when we are poured out and we can become full. A bigger life comes when we are poured out And we can become full. So, that's a little bit of a definition of this word kenosis. To discover the life Jesus has for us, you've got to become empty to become full. You have to experience this pouring out. The passage that Bree read for us earlier is uh, where we'll start. So, if you have your Bibles, jump into Philippians chapter 2 with me. I'm going to start reading in verse 5, and before I do, um, maybe your Bible has it kind of indented like mine. It's sort of formatted a little bit differently. That's because 5 through 11 was originally a hymn, and some scholars believe not only was it a hymn that the early church would have sung, would have lifted up with music, it may have originated as a hymn that the pagans would have sung, that people who were worshiping Caesar, worshiping other gods would have sung, and then Paul took a hold of it and wrote it to praise Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's like Paul's cover band moment. So listen now to the word of God, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll just read verses 5 through 7 for now. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, kenosis, poured himself out, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And I'll continue into verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The wheels for the chapter are set in motion by those verses. Now let's talk about the context for just a minute. If you were here last week, you may remember some of this. If you weren't here, this will be a little bit of a catch-up for you. Paul is writing to a group of people in a city called Philippi, and Philippi was different than any other city Paul had done ministry in until now. Philippi wasn't filled with people like Paul, people from a Jewish background. Philippi was filled with people from a Gentile background. So Paul had to cross some bridges culturally that would have been challenging for him. The city was super proud of their Roman citizenship. They had kind of been on their own. They'd been conquered by Rome. They actually welcomed in the Roman conquest of their city because they knew this is going to be good for us economically. This is going to be good for us in terms of our military protection. And we get the benefit of Roman citizenship. All these things that are really good for us, we welcome them in. The city was a big economic engine for their region of the empire. They lived in security and comfort and peace. Doesn't that sound familiar? They had a lot of stuff to be proud of, but what Paul is pointing the letter at and what he's pointing us toward is that the things that we are most proud of will blind us to the places where we are broken and the places where there is brokenness in our world. This is one of the biggest challenges facing us who live on the east side if we're super proud of our track record at work, if we are super proud, like my friend George was, of all the things that we've accomplished professionally, that's great. But focusing on that and celebrating that to the degree that we so often do, it blinds us. And it can blind us to the things that are right in front of our faces. And our calling is not to keep living in pride. Our calling is to watch as Jesus pours that out through serving others. Our calling is to bend our knees in service to our community so that Jesus receives glory. You want to know a bigger life, find a way to aim your life at somebody else. And this happened to Jesus. This was not something that I just came up with this week. This is the life that Jesus lived. One of the commentaries I studied this week connected this idea of being emptied out, kenosis poured out, directly to the idea of being a servant. Directly to what Paul writes a little bit later on in verse 7. He became a servant. He became a slave is the language that Paul uses. Jesus' life was poured out, emptied out. He experienced this becoming nothing. Why? To become what the people needed, to become what you and I needed for our rescue, for our redemption. If you want to read something really fascinating this week, look at Isaiah chapter 53 where the prophet, centuries before Jesus, is talking about the suffering servant, the one who will come and he will be broken and he will be punished and other people's sins will fall on him. You're reading this centuries before and you're going, gosh, I don't want to be that guy. But then when Paul comes around and he helps the people connect to that prophecy, he helps them see that the person who has come to be their rescuer also came to be the recipient of some serious pain. Well, it's an amazing picture that he paints. So go ahead and read it this week because Jesus is being emptied out so others can thrive. That's the point. Paul writes that Jesus had everything going for him. He had all the power and prestige that could ever be held by anyone. That's what this whole hymn is about. It's a praise to Jesus and who he is. And then he didn't take any of that stuff to heart. He just said, no, I am here to do the will of the Father. I am here to do what God has put me on earth to do. And he shows us the way to a bigger life. Jesus shows us the way to a bigger life. He humbled himself. Isn't it great to have a faith tradition that is centered on someone who is so humble? Who didn't want to build monuments to himself. Who didn't want to see buildings erected in his name. He just wanted to see people's lives transformed. That is a humble person. Humble to the point of death on a cross, even though he had done zero things wrong in his life. Jesus shows us that by being emptied out, poured out, we can become full. And this is one of those wonderful gospel principles that you just kind of have to read in the text. The way up is down. The way to find yourself, like we talked about last week, is to lose yourself. To lose yourself in the things of Jesus. And hear me when I say this, and my friend George would agree with me, this is not going to be easy. There will be pain. My friend George is going through this, and I think he is being poured out for a purpose, but it's not fun for him right now. My question for us this morning is, are you experiencing some kind of emptying in your life right now? Are you experiencing a place where you have felt confident, where you felt like you had stuff together, and then for whatever reason in the most recent season in your life, it's like that cup of water is being poured out, and you don't know why. And you're just mystified as to what is going on. When my family and I first arrived here two and a half years ago, it felt like we were being poured out, like there were parts of our lives that we relied upon heavily that were just gone. We uh, came here from Colorado, had a great season in life there. I came with a whole bunch of feelings of being confident in my work, being capable, and then I found myself at Starbucks with no office working on my sermons on Sunday, going, What am I doing? What have we done? This is crazy. Our friendships from our life in Colorado, they were gone. Like, we could still keep in touch with them, but you know, when you move, it's just different. You're not going to have the same support. You're not going to have the same encouragement. We had to rebuild that. So much of the richness and just the wonderful fabric of life that God had made for us, where we used to live, through our friends, gone. Poured out. But we had to go through that so we could be here with you. We had to go through that so we could be in the neighborhood that God has put us in. We had to go through that so that our kids could thrive in a different way than they ever could. And I'm telling you that God is making a bigger life for us through this pouring out. And it's not been easy. But it turns out God knows exactly what he's doing when he calls us to be poured out, when he calls us to this way of life. It's rough. No one would ever say it's easy. So if you are being emptied out, poured out right now, if you've just been through a season of it, what are you doing with that? Are you sitting with it? Are you just kind of stewing on it? Is there some anger toward God that kind of leaks out in some funny ways and you're going like, whoa, where did that come from? Where is your pride most deeply rooted? For my friend George, it was his profession, it was his ability to kind of be one of the top guys in his field. Paul's telling the Philippians that their pride is in their Roman citizenship and he wants them to have pride in their citizenship in Jesus Christ, good pride. So what is it for you? Is it the fact that you're there before all your other co-workers are there and you leave after everybody's gone home? Nobody's going to touch your work ethic. Is it because you've been in your profession so long or you've seen everything? You just you know what's coming, right? You can kind of predict where the market's going to go. Is it your success through your children? Seeing them maybe do well? If you're a student, is it the grades that you're achieving in your school? I'm mentioning all these things because these are places where I know my pride can creep in. And those are the places where God is calling us to be poured out, to see Him emptying us so that we can be filled with the bigger life that He has for us. Do you want a bigger life, Bethany? Somebody can say yes. Do you want a bigger life? Then be poured out. Look at the places where God is pouring out your life and say, wait a minute, that's where the bigger life is coming from. That's where it's going to be. You've got to be emptied to be full. Jesus wanted the people of Philippi to live differently, to have this bigger life, to point toward the kingdom, to live like citizens under his rule and reign. And now we need to talk about salvation, because this is one of the ways that he brought this to bear in the lives of the people listening to him, or that Jesus brought it to bear. I'm skipping ahead now to Philippians 2 verse 12. We're going to stay in verses 12 and 13 for just a little while. Paul's writing to a group of people, so think of this in the plural. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You want to talk about one of the hardest verses in the New Testament to get at, to try to understand that's one of them. I'm going to give us one approach to that verse today because it is just so complicated work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does this have to do with being emptied out? What does this have to do with kenosis, with all this other stuff? Work out, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That verb, to work out, doesn't mean going to the gym. It means to figure something out by living into it, by experiencing it, realize it in practice. Salvation, work out your salvation, it's just the Greek word soteria, which is the kind of salvation that Messiah would bring. The kind of rescue that isn't military rescue. It's not being rescued by having a better job. It's being rescued by the victory that Jesus won for all eternity. So it's Messiah's salvation that we got to work out in practice. Here's what I think that means. If you're a scientist, what do you do with your latest theory? What do you do with the thing that you've been working really hard on? You think it might work, but you're not sure. You go work on it in the lab. You go build models, you run tests, you try to see what happens when it is actually in real life. Product developers, when they've got the latest killer device, when they've got something coming that is just going to revolutionize the industry, they test that gizmo, that gadget, that widget, by giving it to someone who actually will use it in real life. My kids are learning how to read, Will is learning how to read, by looking at books, letters, sentences. He's playing with this stuff so he can learn how it works in real life. He came up to me yesterday and he said, Dad, a noun is a person, a place, or a thing. And I'm an English person, and so I was just like, oh. Because the definition hasn't changed, right? Like, we got so many fancy new definitions, but that's the same definition I learned when I was a kid. I was so excited about that. Salvation is on-the-job training. It is not a one-time transactional event. It is on-the-job training. How do you learn how to do your job? You go to work. You show up and you fail and you figure it out. Living into the salvation that Jesus has gifted to us through grace is on-the-job training. Just show up and live into it. How do we do that? It's hard. It's costly. But it requires a new framework from us. And one way to do this is to show up to your job, to show up to coffee with your friend, To show up to your kid's school and simply ask the question, what does Jesus want me to do here? What does the gospel demand of me here at my kid's soccer practice? What does the gospel demand of me when I have this meeting with my boss? It starts by emptying out our expectations of those very, very common moments and saying, no, 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 Jesus, you first. I'll follow your lead in this very benign moment, seemingly benign moment, because I bet you're up to something more. I bet you're building a bigger life in me through this moment. Work it out. Work out this gift. It won't be easy, but realize it in practice. Paul is telling the people of Philippi to recognize that they need one another in this journey as well. Now, he talks about fear and trembling. That's actually an Old Testament kind of phrasing. That came up a ton in the Old Testament. Fear and trembling. When God came on the scene, the people were always responding with fear and trembling. Jesus, when he comes on the scene to the disciples, there are moments when they experience fear Phobos is the Greek word. They were terrified when he came walking to them on the water in Matthew 14, right? Here's their leader. Here's their rabbi. They thought they'd kind of left him behind. And Jesus, ironically, the one who built the laws of nature, decides at this moment, I'm not going to play by the laws of nature. I'm going to come walking out to my disciples on the water. And the text tells us they were terrified. The good news of that relates to the good news that we heard last week. Because God is at work, my joy will come. Because God is at work, my joy will come. The disciples had no idea that Jesus was going to play this card on them, and they were terrified. And yet, don't you think after that they were just so energized and so fired up to go do what Jesus was doing? Don't you think they were just like, oh man, this this guy isn't kidding. This is not a small thing. This is a big thing. When Jesus breaks into our lives, even if we experience it at first with fear, it's going to be good. You can turn to your neighbor and say, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. You can say it with a smile on your face, "It's going to be good." I saw an old uh, blog post I wrote come up uh, on my newsfeed recently, and it was about a test that we had done on my son when he was still in the womb. hadn't been born yet. this was years ago. And the test is to check fluids and kind of monitor the level of the baby. If you've had kids, you kind of know how this goes. It's part of the routine. And then of course, there's always the tests that aren't very routine. And so, early on, they were monitoring Will's fluids, there was something going on there, and thankfully, it never amounted to anything. But as people who hadn't had a kid yet, this was our first pregnancy, you're darn right that we were worried. But the post that I wrote, I titled it, A Decision About Worry, and it wasn't a perfect decision. It wasn't like we had this all figured out, we knew that if we just prayed really hard and got on our knees that God would get us through this. It was our living into that experience that working out of salvation where my wife and I looked at each other and we said, we could freak about this. Like we could flip and get really, really worried and that happens. Or we could say in this moment and in the moments that we don't even see yet, we're going to decide by faith that God is still in charge. We're going to decide by faith that when the next test or when the next thing comes up or when he's a teenager and I want to just stuff him in a box and mail him to Thailand, these are the decisions we're going to make because worry is not going to serve anybody. And I was just reminded of that as I was reading, and I was reminded that is the formula for a bigger life. Not that I've gotten it perfectly, but in that moment, we chose to live into an aspect of God's gracious generosity to us, his salvation, to say, because God is at work, even this kid that isn't born yet, that we haven't met yet, joy is going to come. Joy is going to come, and we have failed at that. You guys, don't ever hear me say that we've done this perfectly. If you hear me talking about being a perfect parent, someone come up here and tackle me and take my microphone away. Like, that ain't working, okay? That is a formula, though, for a bigger life. To trust. To enter into it with fear and trembling, as we all should, by the way, when we're parents. If you see anybody entering into parenting with just comfort and ease, you better go talk to them. Like, take them and go get a cup of coffee. But that's why this word trembling is important. It's actually the word tromos, which is where we get the word trauma. If you think you have stepped into a congregation of people that have not been through trauma, let me reassure you. You are in good company. Maybe you had a similar pregnancy, kind of scare like we had. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you went through a season like my friend George, where you're just like, what is going on here? My friend is unpacking trauma from his early life, and it's just painful right now. But if you've got trauma in your past, then you know what Jesus has rescued you from. Because that trauma is not the end of your story. Fear and trembling are not the end of our story. It is the pathway into a bigger life. And don't do what the devil wants you to do and believe that your trauma is only yours. If I hadn't gone to lunch with my friend George, he'd have been fine. But if I keep this up, if we keep this up together, if we keep laying out the things before one another that are hard, that are traumatic, that are difficult to unpack, maybe God gives us that much more opportunity to bless others. Maybe God gives us the sensitivity that we need to look at somebody else and say, I bet you're going through something similar to me right now. Can I tell you a little bit of my story? That's that working out your salvation in community. The verb, work out your salvation, is plural. In Greek, you can have plural verbs. So you're going to love this because I'm from Texas. It's y'all work out y'all salvation. <laughs> y'all work out you alls salvation with fear and trembling. You have been rescued from your trauma. You have been rescued from your past. You are not bound to the things that brought you here. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are bound to what he is doing and giving you a bigger life. Work out your salvation, work out y'all's salvation with fear and trembling. Who is that? Who's working on your salvation with you? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you have these friendships, these places where you can just cry in front of the other person, lay it out on the table? Men hate this kind of stuff, but guys, we need it. We really do. Who are the people that see your tears? Who are the people that can walk with you through your trauma and help you identify those places of joy, even in the midst of some really hard times? If you need help finding that, come talk to me. I'd love to help you find a small group. Love to help you find a mentor. Love to help you find people on a serving team who can come beside you in the things that we all struggle with and say, yeah, I've been there too. And it's okay. I'm with you. That's a bigger life. You want a bigger life? That's a bigger life. Empty it out. Work on your salvation through on-the-job training. And now let's talk about God's good pleasure. That's kind of the later part of the ver- of the. Uh, of verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read from the message translation of this real quick. This is the message paraphrase of verses 12 and 13. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy and energy deep within you, God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure, God's good pleasure. God has given us energy. He has given us life and power for this emptying out, for becoming what he wants us to do. And that should be a relief to us, right? Like, if you're sitting there and you're worrying, like, when am I going to make time for this emptying out thing? How am I going to do this? It doesn't fit into my schedule, you guys. How am I going to make this work? Being emptied out is not dependent on your power or my power. It is dependent on the power of Almighty God. And because we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we have a place that it makes sense to use this power. And if you're not working out your salvation with fear and trembling, you're wasting God's power. You're wasting the power that has been invested in you to shape and to change your life and the lives of others. Do not waste his power. Do not waste it. And the way that we know we're not wasting it is through perseverance and through taking risks perseverance is the first thing we need to talk about. Why should we care about work out your salvation or this emptying out business? Because we're wasting God's power without it. If we're we're choosing not to do that, what we are choosing to do is to persevere even in the midst of trying situations. And I want to just say that at the top, every pastor that talks about perseverance should talk about this. If you are persevering through a situation that you do not need to be in, whether it is an abusive situation whether it is just something's wrong with your work and you need to get out of there, you do not need to hear this is applicable to your situation. There are times when we are not supposed to persevere and you use your God-given good sense and you use the people around you to help you discern when you do not need to persevere. I'm talking about the other 95-ish percent of the time when we really need to persevere because we live in an age that is called the golden era of bailing out. That's a New York Times article from a couple weeks ago, and I love that title, The Golden Era of Bailing Out. Now, you take that other stuff that I said about abuse and all that, and you hold on to that, but you think real carefully with me about the places where you are called to persevere, where it is worth it. To stay faithful, because that is what God's energy and power is being used for. Paul is telling the people at Philippi to do this back in verses three and four. Listen to this. This is right before the hymn. He's telling the church, Church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Well, that's not a one time thing. You got to keep doing that. You got to keep showing up for that. That is perseverance. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That is takes staying in the relationship, staying faithful, whether it's at your work, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's with your family. Guys, we are all tempted to bail out. We are all tempted to say, my job is so boring right now. I am literally dying of boredom right now. No, you're not. Maybe you're experiencing opportunity to ask God, God, am I aiming at the right target? Am I focused on the right thing at my work? If I'm so focused on this thing that keeps bothering me, or this person that I don't like that much, or this person that I really don't like that much, I am not aiming at the right target. Because your joy, God, your satisfaction, your bigger life for me, it can't be this. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I need to bail out. It doesn't necessarily mean i got to go find a new job. Because guess what will be waiting for you at the next new job? You. And all your baggage and all your stuff and all the filters that we see other things through, I know, I've done it. It is not about that. It is about being faithful. Later on in verse 15, Paul admonishes the people at Philippi to shine like stars, to so get the gospel, to so have a grip on this bigger life that God has for them, that they shine like stars. Stars shine even when we're not looking at them. That's perseverance. That's faithfulness. Well, it's a metaphor, but you get the idea. Now, let's apply this to January 21st, 2018. Are you feeling tired in your work? Are you feeling like you just want to give up? Are you feeling sick of school and the tests and just the constant barrage of stuff? Have you lost your way as a parent? Are you just tired of the same pushback, same blowback from your kids? Don't bail. Do not give in to the golden age of bailing. Don't believe the lie that if everybody else is doing it, it must be okay for me. Because that's where we turn the page to risk. Risk, in our culture, especially here on the east side, is looking different than somebody else. Or having somebody that I think is smarter than me say to me, you look foolish persevering in that job. Or you look foolish staying in that relationship. That's what we're all really worried about, right? Is how other people look at us. I know that's a sin that I carry. I guess I'm the only one. And nobody said amen. amen. Jesus said this to his disciples. This was the risk that he called them to. This is the risk that transforms your life and my life. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 40, 42. One of my favorite verses in all the scriptures. So Jesus called them, called the disciples, and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must become your CEO. Whoever wants to become great among you must become your team captain. Whoever wants to become great among you must become, say it with me, church, your servant. Your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. I joke with my kids when I get them out of the bath. You know, guys, the first will be last and the last will be first. My son's always trying to jockey to be the first one out of the bath. Buddy, first will be last, last will be first. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Nobody else at that time was teaching a faith, a religion, a way of looking at the world that said, You be last, others be first. That wasn't the way of the Roman Empire. That is not the way of the prevailing culture of the East Side. Everyone in this room knows that if we start living into this, if we truly start owning this, there are going to be some wise, some savvy, some market-leading people that look at us and say, you're dumb. You're being a doormat. You're letting people walk all over you. If you are the servant of all, people are just going to exploit you. And that may happen sometimes. And there are times when we need to stand up for ourselves and fight back and stand our ground, but the gospel is neither sniveling nor swaggering. The gospel is not sniveling and it is not swaggering. It is that wonderful place in the middle that Jesus leads us to. The gospel is not risking all the time and it is not persevering all the time. It is that wonderful place in the middle where we say, Jesus, this moment, this situation, this relationship, this person, what do you got? And that's the way to a bigger life. Friends, you want to find a bigger life, you want to find this church flourishing even more than we are right now, start thinking about the other people who are not here yet. Look at these empty seats. Who is not here yet? That is the outflow of the pouring out of our lives that we need to be increasingly focused on. We need to be emptied for the sake of others as Christ was, and that will be a risk. Because it will mean inviting people in that may not accept our invitation to come to church. It'll mean inviting people to things like our Paradise Baptist Church dinner coming up in a couple weeks and Easter coming up in April and saying, I'm going to be there with you. I'm not just going to give you my invite. I'm going to be there with you. I'll sit with you. I will hang out with you. I will make sure that you do not feel like you're alone. And if you came to church alone this morning, like, praise God. Thank you for having the courage to do that. I don't ever want people to have to sit alone because I want our church to be the kind of church that just says, you're sitting by yourself. Come sit with me. I got a seat right here, right here for you. Because we exist for the sake of the people that ain't here yet. In another church, somebody would have said amen. 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 You want a bigger life? Give it away to other people. You want a bigger life? Find a way to give away your life. I'll finish with this story. There's a football player that some of you have heard of, a young man by the name of J.J. Watt. He plays for the Houston Texans. No, he's not a Seahawk. And he discovered that there was a bigger life waiting for him in a time when his life was being poured out. Watt was Defensive Player of the Year for a couple years, amazing athlete, some say maybe one of the best to ever play his position, great at defense. And he had three years of just incredible success. And then in 2016, he had a bunch of injuries. In 2017, he came back, he was fired up, he was ready to go. And in the first week of the season of this past year, Hurricane Harvey hit the city of Houston, my hometown, and destroyed the city tore up the city and the whole Gulf Coast of Texas like no storm has ever torn up any part of our country. And so J.J. Watt, on a whim, starts this You Caring page. Many of you have heard about this. And in the short span of two months, he raises $37 million to help with hurricane relief. $37 million. You wanna talk about a bigger life? Talk about somebody that just uses their social media influence to do that. I will never again scoff at social media because J.J. Watt found $37 million to help people recover from a hurricane. But he kinda already had a bigger life, right? He was already living a $100 million contract, top of his game, one of the best players in the NFL. He starts doing this $37 million deal. And you know what happens right around the same time he closed the giving on the You Caring page? He blew out his knee. Done for the season. His football life emptied out. His professional life poured out. The thing he'd been training and training and training for all season long, gone in the blink of an eye. Everybody around the world who believes in karma went, What? But J.J. Watt didn't stop. He did not stop. He kept working on this goal of a bigger life. I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know if he believes in God. But he made the cover of Sports Illustrated as one of the co-sports persons of the year. And the magazine asked him, what do you think of all this? What do you think of the 37 million? What do you think of this this bigger life that apparently is unfolding around you, even though you can't set foot on the football field? The article says this, J.J. Watt doesn't believe he deserves Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year award. As he sees it, all he did was ask people for money. All I did was give people a way to help, he says. If I'm going to get an award, I feel like the over 200,000 other people who gave to my fund should get that award too. And later in the article, it says this. When it was all over, when the games went on without him after his injury, at some point, when J.J. Watt looks back on the season, he will come to realize what everybody around him already knows. When it comes to being bigger than football, when the stakes were higher than a stop or a win or even a Super Bowl, J.J. Watt gave the city what it needed. Can we give the East Side what it needs? Can we give our neighbors what they need? Can we pour out our lives and step into this much, much, much bigger life that God has for us? You don't got to go raise $37 million, but you can find someone who's hurting and you can sit with them. And you can come pray with me tonight as we pray for teenagers. You can look at a family that's struggling and you can reorganize your schedule so you can be there to help them. You can enter into the marketplace free of cynicism. Go to your place of work tomorrow morning and say, no, I am not listening to the narrative anymore that I've seen this, that I get everything. Be emptied of that destructive self-sufficiency and go in there with the sufficiency of Jesus. There we go. Guys, this is what God has called the church to do in every season that it has flourished. Pour out its life, the life of Christ, for somebody else. You want a bigger life? Go find that this week. Let me pray and ask Jesus to help us find it. Jesus, we want this bigger life. We think we might know what it looks like. But even in that, we have expectations that you may or may not want us to pursue. And whether it's celebrities who have found your calling, whether it's just our little corner of the world becoming more like you intended to be, God, we want to seek that by pouring out our lives for others. It's scary. It's risky. There's no guarantee that we'll have a return on our investment. Who cares? Because this is the adventure. This is the joy for which you made us. God, our hope is that every person who comes to this church, every person who is touched by someone who belongs to this church, who serves here, will find a way to go forth and to live this bigger life and invite others into it. We thank you for the opportunities to serve on all of our ministry teams because that's a way to live this bigger life. That's a way to embrace the calling that God has for each of us. So with your courage now as we rise once again to raise our voices in worship, God, help us get a glimpse of your bigger life and give us the courage and the power that we need to step into it. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.